0: out the red carpet today, Jake.
1: Yes, of course. We have to.
0: Our inaugural guest is here. I'm so excited.
1: Yeah, me too. This is going to be great. Really excited to have our, our first guest for, our, for the thing about healthcare podcast. So give a little bit of introduction to our very special guest, Asha Shah Shahjahan. Uh, she is the Director of Health Equity and Health Disparities at Beaumont Health in Michigan. Uh, she's also a physician. She does a little bit of medicine on the side, I guess, um, in addition to having a Master's in Health Services Administration, uh, she's a board-certified family medicine physician. Uh, she received a couple of really impressive honors, the 2019 Joyce Ivy Woman of Impact Award, as well as being named in 2017 as one of Crane's Detroit 40 Under 40. She is also a podcaster, so she's going to be critiquing us at the end, I think, about how we do totally. as hosts.
0: I don't know why you're here with us today, but thank you for humoring us because you're such a pro.
1: Exactly. You're so funny. Yeah,
2: you guys are funny.
1: So she hosts the Beaumont House Call podcast. So subscribe to that one too, because um, you'll learn a lot of great information. And uh, she's done a lot of work with government leaders focused on access and health disparities, and has really had an active engagement in improving graduate medical education. So welcome, Aja. Very pleased to have you with us today. And wondered if we could start off, and maybe I've given a little bit of background, but if you could share a little more with us about your journey and you know what you've been working on and what really inspires you as a healthcare leader.
2: So Pratita and Jake, thank you so much for having me. And you guys are so fun and I'm excited to be here. And I feel honored to be the first <laughs> inaugural guest, although the red carpet must be going really far across the nation because I'm in Detroit and you guys are all the way in the West Coast. Um, <laughs> but anyways, uh, so I went to Creighton University in um, for my undergraduate and that is a school that has the pillars of social justice and service as their academic pillars and so i did a lot of volunteer work throughout like my college career and i always sort of had a medicine focus but what i started noticing is that as i was volunteering at various locations so for example like an indian reservation an area with homelessness or you know, just different populations i kept seeing the same theme over and over again where you live matters, right? Your social circumstances kind of shape your healthcare outcomes. And when you look at medicine, a lot of times the physicians, the providers are the ones that are saying, you know, diet, exercise, take this medicine, do that. You can have the power to do things only based on the options that you have. And so I think that really inspired me to start really looking at people's social circumstances and and figuring out how can we give everyone an opportunity to be healthy? And it's their choice whether or not they can do it, but everyone should at least have the opportunity. And so that's sort of what guided me into the direction of looking more at community health and uh, like kind of the social inequities in healthcare.
0: You mentioned Creighton University. So I have to do the shout out to Gina. Yes, she's actually Ray. a common friend. Holly. Yeah, so you went to college with her, and Jake and I went to graduate school with her. So, dedicate this to Gina. Shout out to our dear friend. Yes,
2: she's like Gina
0: the Ray. modern day, cooler version of like Kevin Bacon, I think. <laughs> like three degrees of separation to Gina. And so, if you don't know Gina out there, you're missing out, and you probably know her. She's awesome. <laughs> And super cool and popular. Yeah. Yes, totally. So all that being said, we can dive right in. The thing about healthcare is that it discriminates. Maybe talk a little bit, Asha, with us about how our healthcare systems discriminate. Like we talk about social disparities a lot. What does that actually mean? How does that show up? Well, it's a pretty loaded question, uh, Pradeepa, because it's like, if you're looking at, for example, if
2: you're looking at social circumstances, what we're talking Mm -hmm. about is like where you live, you know, where you work, where you play, where you pray, like all of those things influence your health. And, you know, I'll give an example of one of the patients that I had. So this was lead up to some of the inequities and discrimination in healthcare. So yeah, I was a resident, and I had this one patient who she was just awesome. She was the coolest person ever. She was 16 years old, star of her basketball team, um, but she lived in a in an inner city neighborhood, and her her mother wasn't in her life. Uh, her father was incarcerated, and she lived with her older brother, who was just like 21 years old. And um, so she comes into my office. She's 16, and she says, "Dr. Shahjahan, I'm pregnant." And I'm like, "Okay, what are we gonna do here?" Like I was freaking out. And I was like, oh, no, thinking about her basketball scholarship and all of these things. And she looks at me and she says, I'm going to drop out of school. And so in my mind, I'm like, oh, she's going to drop out of school because she's got to get a job. And I'm like, making all these stories up in my head. And I took a second to ask her why she wanted to drop out of school. And her answer was just like, I wasn't expecting her answer, which was basically, she said, you know, Dr. Shahjahan, I, I walk to school every day. And I walk through an area that we call Death Valley. Uh, It's basically an area where there's a lot of gang activity. Um, She goes, I get hooted and hollered at when I walk to school. People throw things at me. And I put my life in danger every day. But if I have a child, I'm not going to put my child in that kind of danger. So if I'm pregnant, I'm not walking to school. And so in my mind, I'm like, you were going to drop out of school just because you didn't have a safe way to get to school,
0: right? Mm
2: -hmm. and so I was like, well, we can arrange arrange something with that. So I remember that day clearly because I had so many patients on my schedule. I was already behind. Uh, and I ended up uh, calling her principal's office, connecting with her principal, explaining the situation. And then they were able to arrange transportation to and from school for her throughout her entire pregnancy. And then she did some distance learning towards the end. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that story. In addition to that, I remember like being like, okay, we're just going to hook you up with this. And I I was upset because I was behind for the rest of the day, which a lot of providers can understand this. I think other people are like, who cares if you're behind? But from a provider mindset, you're like, okay, my job is to just like give her I could just give her her prenatal vitamins and send her to an OBGYN and be done with it. Um, Fast forward three, four years later, I'm out of my residency. I'm working in a suburb. And guess who walks in my door? That patient. She walks in the door and she is now has a two-year-old child and she's moved out into the suburbs. And she told me, you know, thank you so much for taking the time to arrange that for me because I graduated high school. I got a job. I moved out of my social circumstance that was not great and I'm doing great. And so is my child. Wow. You know, and the reason I tell that story is not to be like pat on the back. I'm so awesome or whatever. The reason I say that is that providers, you know, physicians in particular or any provider, you have the power to really change the outcomes of your patients. And too often when we look at healthcare, we look at it as very transactional. Like you come into my clinic, I treat you, you do what I say, see you later. And we don't really look at their social circumstances and things that prevent them from being healthy. And like socioeconomic factors are like the number one reason why people are unhealthy, not only in this country, but around the world. And so I share that story with you to kind of help you understand like what the social determinants are like for her education is a social determinant. If she did not, you know, finish school um, or had a good education, she may not be able to get a job. And then her child, you know, brand new baby will be born into a circumstance of poverty. You know, if she does not have a safe way of getting to school, that's another social determinant. It's like your safety, your circumstances around your home, like, can you go walking outside or is it an unsafe neighborhood? And you can't. So these are the different things that kind of shape healthcare. And I think a lot of times in the healthcare business, we kind of look at healthcare as something that we control within the four walls of the hospital or the four walls of the clinic. And we forget that there's a whole nother world out there. So when you're prescribing things for people who are obese or people who can't pick up their prescriptions because they can't afford it, if they can't follow the instructions that you're giving, then it's sort of useless. Uh, so that's sort of just a little bit of a background about, you know, social determinants. But then you asked about discrimination in healthcare, And discrimination in healthcare care is, is a whole nother beast. And many providers will tell you, you know, I treat all my patients the same. That's how I was trained. And I agree that, you know, most providers, we take this oath, do no harm. And that's what we try to do. But there is implicit bias in all people, no matter what you do. And there's plenty of studies that back up the fact that there are disparities within healthcare based on implicit bias and discrimination. So if you look at, you know, some stats like 42% of LGBTQ uh, patients have said that they have felt mistreated by a provider. 23% of LGBTQ patients don't see a provider because of a fear of being mistreated. Uh, if you look at pain medication, you know, African-Americans are denied pain medication more than non-African-Americans. Even in gender bias, you know women are more likely to go undiagnosed with a heart attack than men. So like, these are all biases that are within our system that are unconscious, that occur, that can lead to discrimination. Uh, You know, recently, uh, Chadwick passed away of colon cancer, and it had me looking back at the colon cancer guidelines. And if you look at the colon cancer guidelines, you know, it says, you know, 50 years old for most people. And so if you look at our electronic medical record, the automation is at the age of 50, right, for everybody. But studies show that African-Americans or Blacks should be screened at the age of 45, because their incidence of colon cancer occurs earlier and it's a more advanced disease. But most of the automated systems don't change for you know, race, ethnicity. So these are just some examples of how there's discrimination in, in healthcare.
1: This is really fascinating to hear more about, and the piece that I wanted to kind of pick up on and ask you a little to delve into a little more is the comment you made about how healthcare is transactional, and how that really—I mean—that that really resonates with me about, in sort of an underlying fashion, what I feel like drives a lot of this is that. I mean, our incentive structures as healthcare systems is, is often really based on that, is around how do we generate the charge, how do we get reimbursed, et cetera. So I'm wondering if maybe you can share a little more about kind of how you see that playing out, or even if there's opportunities that you've worked on of trying to shift that dynamic away from being more transactional to kind of getting underneath some of the, the elements and challenges that you've brought up.
2: Yeah, so you know, there's a deep disconnect between healthcare systems and what actually drives healthcare outcomes. So, like like we mentioned, the social determinants of health. So if you're looking at from a provider standpoint, there's a lot of constraints on providers. So, for example, there's a time limit because people are looking at how many patients do you see. Although people are saying that we're going towards value-based healthcare rather than volume-based healthcare. It seems that people are still in this struggle of, I need to see as many patients as possible. And so then the time that you have with the patient is much less. So then if you're talking about to a patient diet and exercise, you're just like, oh, okay, you're in the obese category. You need to diet and exercise, but how do they do that? How do you walk them through that? In 15 minutes, there's no way you can go through that. That time constraint, I think is a big issue. The other thing is like reimbursement models that, uh, like I said, people, even though we're moving towards value-based, for example, let's say you get reimbursed better if your patient's hemoglobin A1c is better controlled, which is kind of the, the way that things are going. But then as a provider, how are you able to, within 15 minutes, help guide a patient to have a better hemoglobin A1c if the time is still the same? So I think some of the issues is like when you're saying, oh, we're gonna to change to a value-based system so that we're looking at healthcare outcomes, if you're not changing the structure, the structure is still tra- that transactional, you come to my clinic, I see you, I've got 15 minutes to explain what the issue is, review your labs, answer your questions and see you later, it just doesn't work. And I think that we see like in the United States, our healthcare is so broken. I mean, it's so expensive to get healthcare in the United States, yet we have the best available technology But if you look at all the other countries in the world, we spend the most amount of money, but we're amongst the developed countries, the most unhealthy, right? We have the highest obesity rate of any of the developed countries. Uh, We have the highest suicide rate of any of the developed countries. Um, Our life expectancy in the United States is around between 78 and 79 years old, which is the lowest of the developed countries. And it's 47th in the world. This way that the healthcare system interacts with people this transactional medicine where it's like, you come see me, I tell you what to do and you go home and try and do that, um, is very, I call it old school medicine because an upstream model would look at the neighborhoods of where these people are and how people can actually make health a part of their life and lifestyle and not just a prescription one and done.
0: So I'm curious about that. As you talk about outcomes in the United States compared to other developed countries, would you describe, you know, the issues related to social determinants of health and perhaps our lack of infrastructure around those needs? Would you characterize that as a national problem or a global problem? How would you describe that?
2: I definitely think it's
0: a global problem,
2: because if you look at uh, what drives health healthcare outcomes, it's, you know, health behaviors and social factors are about 70% of what results in health outcomes, whereas 20% really is just healthcare interaction, meaning access to healthcare and screenings and those things. And about 10% is the environment in which you live in, meaning like pollution and that kind of thing. So if it's 70% of your healthcare outcomes is based on your social circumstances and behaviors, and we know that uh, socioeconomic factors really drive healthcare outcomes in terms of the access of things and options that you have, income-based health disparity is a worldwide problem it's not just a problem in the United States. Although the United States has one of the largest income health disparities in the world, you look at other countries that have large income gaps and you see, like, if you just talk about uh, life expectancy, like I mentioned, so I was saying that, you know, the United States isn't doing great compared to the other developed nations. So for example, like, Life expectancy in Japan is about 83 years of age. Um, many things contribute to that. Some people say that, like in the 50s and 60s, there was a huge investment in public health in Japan. Um, also, the lifestyle of people in Japan, living in communities, uh, walkability, and like the nutrition emphasis is different. But then, if you look at other countries, so like if you look at Malawi um, in Africa. Life expectancy is forty-seven years of age. So if you look at R seventy-eight, that's not that's you know completely different. But when you look at amongst developed countries, we're not doing that great. So I think it, globally it's an issue because where you live matters. The options that you have in your neighborhoods matter, um, and it's not always about the access to healthcare, although that is part of the puzzle. And so that's kind of a global problem. But you see the countries that do better are the ones that tend to really integrate health into their communities and less so much into their hospital systems. And as I mentioned, like if you look at the United States, we have like the best technology. We use the most imaging technology like MRIs and CT scans, but our health outcomes are still poor. And yet when I say there's a disconnect with healthcare systems, if you look at where the budgets go... In healthcare systems, it's like we want more technology, we want the biggest advances, we want the the newest MRI machine, but we know that that doesn't really drive healthcare outcomes, or that doesn't really improve health as much as social circumstances. So why is it that healthcare systems don't feel like it's necessary to be involved in community planning, uh, in social structures, and in in partnering with communities? And if you look at, uh, you know, some health systems do do that. I'm not saying all don't. But when you look at crises like now, the COVID-19 crisis, what is the first budget that gets cut? Public health, surprisingly, in in the middle of a pandemic. Um, Community health. You know, in the middle of a pandemic, the things that really matter in communities are the involvement uh, between providers and community members. And that's the first thing that always gets cut in budgets. And to me, it it just doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah. And it just it reminds me of a conversation I know Jake and I have had um, on previous episodes related to kind of the haves and the have nots in our healthcare system. And so, you know, just thinking about the technology, like you've mentioned, we have this great access to technology, which maybe prolongs life if you can get access to those treatments or, you know, industry kind of leading technologies. And then there's everyone else who maybe perhaps is kind of foundationally trying to figure out how to manage their health.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, the the interesting thing is, as you mentioned, like, you know, what can we do about the... I I don't want to sound like a Debbie Downer that I'm just like saying all the things that are (laughs) wrong. But like when you talk about technology... I think one of the things that to think about, like, for example, like I think one of you had asked about, like, what am I working on? It's like, how do you really leverage technology to help you with these challenges? And so, for example, I, you know, I teach in graduate medical education And in the graduate medical education work that I do, so I teach 794 residents, or I'm in charge of teaching 794 residents across eight hospital systems, um, teaching hospitals. And the thing is, is it's not that providers don't want to help people, like with that one patient I mentioned, the one who, you know, needed help with transportation. It's not that I didn't want to help her. A lot of times we don't know how to, or we don't have the resources to, or the time to. So uh, what I've recently been working on is the Social Determinants of Health uh, electronic medical record tool. So what it does is it basically works as a virtual social worker um, in a way. So like if a patient has a problem, a social problem, I would type in the patient's zip code and then um, it would generate a referral to a social service agency. So for example, let's say I have a patient with congestive heart failure and that patient needs to have a low sodium diet, um, but the patient doesn't have access to fruits and vegetables, a good grocery store. Well, I can type this into this electronic um, tool and it will give me all of the urban gardens in the area, all of the food banks in the area, um, discounted prescription food programs, And then I can hand that to the patient. Now, the difference is some people will say, well, yeah, I've got my little Rolodex of programs and you hand it to the patient, patient calls the program, half the time the program's no longer in existence because they were grant funded. This tool actually checks these um, social service agencies uh, every three months to make sure that they're still active and, and working. And then the cool thing is is that it generates a referral to that agency so the patient not only gets the information the agency gets the information of the patient so they can also call or follow up with the patient and then me as the provider i actually get a generated report whether my patient went or not so then this is a way to continue a conversation like hey i saw that you were having uh, trouble getting food and you had a referral to x y and z place did you end up going and what happened with that or i saw that you went Has that helped you? It kind of opens more of a conversation to have with patients about their social circumstances and helps uh, providers feel empowered to be able to actually tackle some of those in a way that's quick and efficient, and not taking up hours and hours of searching, because most clinics don't have social workers anymore. Because again, that's one of the budget cuts, so one of the first things to go. And so, I think it would be really interesting to look at how can we creatively start integrating with our communities through technology. Uh, I'll tell you this: uh, so, you know, family physicians back in the day. What they would do is go door to door to people's homes and and see where they lived and worked and knew the family and all of those things. And then as time progressed, we've changed the clinic model. Well, now, because of COVID-19, I'm doing a lot more video visits. And I will tell you that I feel like it's helped me because as you can probably see right now, we're looking at each other. You can kind of see my home. Um, I can see my patient's dog running across the room. I can see their children. I can see a lot. I get a glimpse into their lives that I don't get in the office. And so it's an interesting thing to think about is that although some people think that, you know, video visits and technology is a barrier to -to face-to-face care, you kind to of get a glimpse of some of these social circumstances that it's more helpful in terms of clues. So, for example, one of my patients, we we're talking about diet and exercise, and I told her, I said, all right, open your fridge for me. And she's like, are you serious? I said, yeah. So she takes me into her kitchen. She opens her fridge and we start kind of going through like some of the things that she was eating. And it's a lot easier when you can see that. And if the patient's comfortable showing you, obviously, but it's more effective than just talking to a patient in a a room and asking them what, you know, what do you eat? You can actually see it. Open your medicine cabinet. Let's go through those. That's expired. You should throw that away. Uh, You know, these are, these are ways that you can really integrate into people's lives. And I think that's missing in healthcare. So I always wonder about what are the different technologies that we can use so that it's convenient and easy and efficient uh, for patients and providers?
0: You talked a little bit as we started, right? There's this transactional piece. You've talked a lot about really looking at community, how we might leverage technology. You also mentioned implicit bias. You know, and I think we start from the foundation that we all have bias. 100% of everybody has bias. So how do you start to really understand that and, you know, really help providers, future generations of providers even really start to understand those things and start to really refine clinical decision making, even knowing that, you know, there's technology behind it. But like you mentioned with one of your examples, you know, you can't just rely on the technology. So how do you start to build that?
2: So, you know, I believe in changing culture and the only way to change culture is to start at the roots, right? So if you look at a tree, you can look at the leaves of a tree, but if, you know, if they're dead and you don't look at the roots, you're in trouble, right? Um, Likewise, when you look at healthcare, it's like we say, you know, turn the faucet off instead of mopping up the mess. So, um, the reason I say that is because when you look at healthcare education, people come into healthcare very idealistically. Like, I want to help people. I want to change the world. I want to make things healthier. And then as they go through medical school and then residency, they sort of get jaded. Um, things get kind of comfortable, and it, it becomes all about the burnout that's occurring. Mm-hmm. So that, that's sort of like the problem. Um, but if you go back to the roots, if you start teaching about things like implicit bias, social determinants of health, community health, at the beginning of medical school and throughout medical school and throughout residency training, then it becomes part of the culture. And I think what's happening, that is happening across many healthcare systems. But the issue is, is then the, the older generation of physicians don't have that training. So that when medical students get into residency, their mentors and trainers are not um, reflecting that that piece when they're precepting with students and residents, and so I think that the best way to do it is to start from the roots. But then the thing is, if you're doing implicit bias training, I, I think I wrote an article in Abed on this recently. So um, the governor of Michigan uh, has put a mandate that all healthcare workers have to have implicit bias training. There's a lot of pushback going back and forth on what does that mean and what does that do, and the op-ed that I wrote was that's great, but it can't just be a checkbox. Like we had training one time because that's not, that's not going to change anything. If you think about it, how many times have you tried a diet, right? Like, you know, you should do diet and exercise and someone talks to you about it. And you're like, okay, I'm going to do this. You do it for like three days and then you stop. Same with implicit bias training. If you just get training like once a year or once every couple months, it, it doesn't, it doesn't last. It's something that kind of sticks with you, but the more that you get it, the more that it's ingrained in organizational culture. Um, So that means not just physicians and providers, but healthcare administrators, uh, janitorial staff, like everybody has to have this training and it should be ongoing. I think also things like who's, who are the board of directors? Who are the people that work in the hospital? Do they look like the patients that we're serving? Is there diversity um, amongst the decision makers? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because if you don't have diversity amongst decision makers, then you you don't get that variety of opinion. The other thing I also think that's really important is being able to look at racial, ethnic, and gender and age-based data when you're looking at healthcare outcomes. And this was emphasized with COVID-19 that there was a disproportionate number of black patients that were getting severely sick and people started questioning and looking at it. Uh, But if you look at racial and ethnic data, uh, that's how you discover things like colonoscopies might have to be done earlier in certain populations than other. That's when you look at, uh, you know, women present differently than men for heart attacks. So. Unless the researchers and the hospitals, when you're looking at readmissions, if you're not looking at what is the zip code that the patient's coming from, what is the ethnic background, the racial background, the age, you know, there's a there's a lot of discrepancy between elderly and, and younger patients. But when you look at most of the studies that are done, it's based off of a, a Caucasian male. Um, if you look at women, 51% of the population is women in this country, but only 20% of clinical trials include women. So when you're looking at unconscious bias, implicit bias training. It's not just about training people that bias exists. It's about really looking at healthcare data, understanding how it affects patients and their lives, um, and then also being able to reflect the community in which you live in. If they're not represented at the table, then how can you really, um, you know how can you come up with patients' needs if they're not at the table?
1: Yeah I that's that's really I I really like that and I think um you know one of the things that I've been thinking about as it relates to this is just that it's not something that Um, Necessarily, we get as much it gets as much airtime, I guess you could say, as as a lot of these other things. You know, I think I'm thinking we go to our executive meetings, and it's you know there's always finance on the agenda, there's always throughput on the agenda, but it's infrequent that there's a topic about disparities or about bias or things like that. I mean, they're they're on the agenda, but it's not kind of one of those every single meeting, this is the type of thing. And I think it also gets to a, a general topic that's been prevalent within the industry for a while now is about how do you build speak up culture? And how do you build stop the line? And I don't know that we've really done that sort of similar, You know, tied these two things together as explicitly around you know when there is overt bias or overt racism or things like that. Are we doing the same thing where we're stopping the line in the same way that we would do with a with a safety issue because I think it is it is the same. I mean, I think you know when you can point to the fact that the outcomes are so much worse. I mean, it it obviously is a a welfare issue, a health issue for for that population, but I don't know that we necessarily treat it the same way. And and, and I don't know if there, if you've ever seen anything like that around trying to you know how do we integrate this concept more into kind of our our core operations and our core business and not treat it like it's sort of this thing on the side that it's, okay, it's the first month of the quarter, so it's time for us to talk about this topic again. I mean, have you seen anywhere anybody that's doing this well, I guess?
2: Yeah, so I think that's where organizational culture comes into play. Like, it has to be part of your culture of of your organization. So, Mm -hmm. um, for example, my role is more in medical education. So some of the things that I'm doing in terms of medical education is, For example, we have uh, morbidity and mortality reports, right? And you're looking at what went wrong in the case. And a lot of times, uh, most health systems, you know, they have their quality and patient safety forums, and they'll say, you know, what went wrong in this case? But how often are we integrating in that what went wrong was, was there a community problem? Was there a social determinant problem? Was there a problem with implicit bias from the provider or the other way around? Was there a health literacy issue? And when you start integrating those in things like rounds and M&Ms, you know, discharge planning, like when you have your handoff, oh, and this is the social circumstance issue. And this is also, um, you know, uh, some of the implicit bias that might be going on. The patient is a pain patient and with sickle cell and has been here five times and you know the staff is labeling the patient as a quote-unquote pain seeker i mean these are things that if it's part of the culture that we talk about this every time then it just becomes mm-hmm. a normal part of the culture right and i think what is happening instead is that it becomes a checkbox Mm -hmm. we have to do this so like you said once a month we have diversity day and oh we're going to talk about you know this on a particular issue and it doesn't become a constant longitudinal part of healthcare curriculum and then also just healthcare delivery you know like people do collaborative rounds which are great because that's usually when like the nurses and the social workers are in collaborative rounds and giving more of the insight to the patient and many places are now doing collaborative rounds with family members to get more of an insight of the patient but in those collaborative rounds, how often are we looking at the social circumstances? And sometimes we only look at that at discharge, like, oh, the patient doesn't have a place to go. Oh, there's the patient can't afford their medication. But by the time you find that out, it's already been a week and they're back in the hospital again. So these are the kinds of things that we really need to start looking at, and then also looking at how you can partner with other organizations. Like I feel like healthcare kind of is siloed. Um, the administration of healthcare looks at healthcare as a business, and they look at just the hospital and how we can do well as a hospital. But it's like, how do you partner with schools, uh, with the government agencies, with urban planning in the area? I mean, some hospital systems are doing great in that. They're really investing in the community that they are in, and they are, you know, creating gardens or creating parks. Um, and, you know, not just for beautification, but because they know that that is also helps with things like exercise and mental health, and loneliness. I mean, there's so many things that integrate into health. And I think when you silo it off into a business of, again, that transactional of we have to take care of the finances and you're like, oh, we've got so many readmissions, but you're not really looking at the reason why patients are getting readmitted. You're looking at things like just medication or, you know, the fact that they're, that they're not following, you know, like I, I, for, you know, I'm a physician. I've seen the notes. It's like patients noncompliant but nobody looks at why the patient is non-compliant. They may know, but it's not really in the note that, hey, the patient's non-compliant with picking up their medicine. This happens, this, I tell this to my residents all the time, like asthma patients, um, people with asthma and COPD. Inhalers are so expensive, especially the ones that work. So if you do a pulmonary consult, the pulmonologist is giving this fancy, wonderful inhaler um, and the patient's like, I feel great. They take the inhaler home, they're doing fantastic. And then they run out, they go to fill it. It's like $500 for this inhaler. Then they decide not to use that inhaler instead to use their rescue. And so it's not so much that the patient didn't understand what to use. It was because it was too expensive. And then, you know, we have to get a prior off and figure out all this stuff. And in that time, the patients had two admissions already.
0: You know. But when you talk about um, patient as non-compliant, I think that's fairly pejorative. I mean, yeah. it, almost right there, yeah. we're changing the narrative on intention right. and laying judgment on a behavior, which I, you know, I was thinking about that example with the inhaler. They're non-compliant, but really, they don't have access to an inhaler. Those right. are- The same, but very different ways that you kind of interpret that. And I, you know, when we do look backs of cases, sometimes you look back and you're like, how did nobody catch that this happened, right? And you're doing that quality patient safety review on something that occurred. Right. Well, because everything we documented along the way makes it sound like the patient, we've laid judgment on the patient.
2: Mm-hmm. Patient labeling is a huge thing. And that's the, in medical education, we're really trying to get away from that. And I think that's a problem. Uh, like I had mentioned, some of the older seasoned providers are used to that labeling because it's, a, it's like the inner dialogue of physician dialogue of handoff. And so we're trying to get away from that. So using the word pain seeker, frequent flyer, um, these are things that medical people know those terms, what they mean. But we're trying to get away from saying that or writing that. Saying that somebody is an alcoholic is a medical diagnosis that's a little bit different because if they have a drinking history, it's kind of like calling somebody obese. But things like labeling someone non-compliant without understanding why. So if you say the patient is non-compliant, he refuses to take medicine, He can afford it. He can, you know, so you have to document all of the reasons as to why you're saying to patients because there are some people who are just they don't want to take medications or whatever. So I think that's the, the argument from the physician side, like, well, we're trying to make everything so PC, then now I can't write stuff in my note that helps me understand what's going on. I wrote an op ed about a situation where there was discrimination and I'll never forget it. I had um, a patient when I was a resident and the patient was African-American history of IV, IVDA. So IV drug use had come back and forth. So was labeled as a frequent flyer coming in for pain medication all the time, like three times in the last month. So she's, she's in the hospital and she's like screaming that her abdomen hurts. And she's like, I'm in so much pain and blah, blah, blah. And I think she had had imaging like the week before. Um, So then this is when people start saying like, how many scans do we give this person? Right? Like you think you're wasting resources. So this patient was screaming and saying that she had abdominal pain. But when you did her abdominal exam, it didn't seem like proportionate to the pain that she was crying for. And the sign out that I had received was uh, patients, a pain seeker, IBDA, consult pain management, maybe GI in the morning, right? So it's like the abdominal issue is not ruled out completely, but it was like in the morning. The patient, I think, came in at like 6 or 7 p.m. Well, overnight, patient deteriorates. Um, The night float person ends up getting a CT scan, and it shows that the patient has ischemic colitis, which is an extremely like an emergent situation. Patient gets taken immediately to the OR, uh, is opened up, and her intestines are all necrotic, um, and she ends up dying, Right. And so then when you, when we looked back at like the M&M and like the QI and all of that stuff, people were saying, well, it was the presentation, the abdominal, that is classic abdominal pain in disproportion to the physical exam. So people were really focused on that. And all I kept thinking was, it's not that, I mean, that was part of it, but it was because she was labeled a pain seeker IVDA Mm. that people didn't take her pain as seriously um, and that she was a you know, frequent flyer. So if you take off all those labels and you look at the person as an individual, I always tell my, uh, my residents, look at that person as first time today, right? Mm-hmm. Which is hard because if they've come multiple times, that is part of your differential in the back of your mind. But I always say nobody wants to be in the hospital. Nobody. I don't, I don't care who they are. If you really dig deep, nobody wants to be in a hospital. And if they're there, there's a reason why they're there. Uh, they need something. They need help in some way. So we're failing in providing the help for that person. I think medical culture is very pessimistic. Sometimes, you know, uh, we get jaded easily, because you see so much of this, like, frequent flyers and people coming in. And it's like, but if you look at every single frequent flyer, I would argue like, if you're looking at from a hospital administration standpoint, look at every single frequent flyer and look into who they are, where they came from, you will find a social determinant reason as to why they're coming to the hospital. You know, why are they going to multiple hospitals? That's another thing that's a red flag. Oh, this person was at just at this other hospital and this other hospital for the same thing. It's like because maybe they're not getting their answers, so they're going to another mm-hmm. place. Like wouldn't you do the same thing, right? So yeah, labeling I think is again it's part of organizational culture. So when you're rounding, um, you know, if one of my residents say the term frequent flyer, I'll have to correct them. But that has to change in verbal dialogue. If you've got the nurses' station, a bunch of nurses sitting together and, and making comments about a patient. You know, how many times they've been here or the fact that they'll never change or whatever. It's like, we're passing all this judgment. And the more that that's accepted uh, you don't interrupt and say, you know what are the patients are patient and here for us to take care of them. And, and interrupting that dialogue because that seeps, seeps through. Right. And then the patient's treated differently.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I really think and it's easy for me to say, right, that we need to revamp our entire healthcare system to look at things differently. Uh, but I think as, as healthcare administrators, people who are in charge of the decision-making, if you can really start connecting community and the importance of the, that the community plays in healthcare outcomes, I think then you can start shifting conversations. And like you, like you mentioned, things like implicit bias is really important because, you know, institutional racism, you know, racism is part of medicine. I teach a course uh, to our residents um, called Racism in Medicine. And we talk about things, so like in Detroit, for example, we had the 67 riots um, and we had a lot of issues with inequities uh, in terms of gentrification and housing inequities and who could get a loan and who couldn't and educational structures in certain neighborhoods versus others. And all of these things are very recent. Like mm-hmm. people are still living who have experienced these things. And so then they wonder like, why is there a distrust in the healthcare system? Well, because a lot of bad things have happened in the past. And you know, people will argue, well, we we've changed, things are different, but that past is what builds the future. And if you don't recognize that past and understand that past, then you're missing an opportunity to connect with people. Why do people not want to do so many tests? Well, we know about the Tuskegee trials that had occurred against African-Americans, and so, I have patients that say, my grandma says I should not get a colonoscopy because I shouldn't do any kind of test uh, without really knowing what's going on. You go back to that 15-minute appointment, you've got 10 other things on your agenda. Are you going to spend the whole 15 minutes talking about a colonoscopy, or are you going to address the diabetes? This is the struggle in medicine.
0: Mm-hmm. And I just think about it as like a healthcare leader, right? And I think that's the flavor of our podcast. Like We are all here, rising leaders that are taking over this system right? Um, But just thinking about as you're talking, how do we look at resource allocation differently? Um, Because even if we were to change the model and completely flip it, really focused on community, really focused on primary care and kind of, you know, more of that holistic wraparound care, we don't have enough resources um, to be able to do that in terms of just even people going to school, like social workers don't get, paid as much. So there's not a ton of people going into that profession. And so how do you really start to as you said, you know, really start to look upstream at the root and start to kind of chip away. But I was just thinking about that as you were talking about how models need to change. I don't know that we yeah. are even prepared for that if we made that decision today.
2: Mm-hmm. Dan Buettner, he wrote this book called Blue Zones. And now there's a movement in California um, about Blue Zones. So but Blue Zones is what a group of researchers did is they looked at at different communities around the world and where were the people the most, the healthiest and how many people lived to the age of hundred and were actually functional, not in a nursing home or with dementia. So he found five communities across the world that had these, had like the best healthcare outcomes. And so then he started really looking at what's going on in those communities that have created this like, almost like wellness oasis of, of people. And, you know, the five places, I just know that Loma Linda, California was one of them, but the others were in other countries, I think in like Italy and Japan and other places. Uh, But what he found was the the main course was community, better mental health, uh, good natural resources, food and diet. I mean, all the things that we preach but it was integrated into those communities. So people were really taking care of each other. You look at what's going on now, the loneliness epidemic is like terrible. We have so many elderly people that are alone. They don't have families to take care of them. And unfortunately, as you get older in this country, it's like your health declines quite a bit because we live in such a stressful culture. Uh, People are not walking outside as much as they used to. I think COVID-19's kind of highlighted the the need for nature and just being outdoors. Th- these are all things that like culture needs to change. So anyways, the reason I brought up blue zones is that they're actually trying to create other blue zones in across Nation by looking at the model of how they worked with government agencies and how they were able to influence food choices um, and not look at, uh, you know, concentrating on the sugar industry. How do you influence people so that they can make wise choices uh, and actually want to walk outside and be able to walk outside? So, read Blue Zones. Um, I think that that's a great model to look at in terms of healthcare systems, partnering with government agencies, school boards, urban planning. I mean, these are not things that are going to happen overnight, but we can learn from other communities where it does happen naturally. And how do we start slowly chipping away at that? We can invest in that um, and get leaders that really believe in it. Um, And don't look at things as short term, like looking more at long term outcomes, you know, like this social determinant tool that we talked about, Uh, you know, originally, when I brought it up to um, some of our leaders, they're just like, well, how do you know it works and prove the value of it? And we had to do a small pilot in, in six clinics before we were able to launch it across the health system. But it's like, sometimes people don't want to take that extra step of trying to prove that something works all the time. It's like, that takes so much more investment and time. So for example, working on that project is a pro bono thing that I'm doing. It's just extra on, in addition to my, all my other duties. And like, I don't think there is an investment in looking at how can we leverage technology. Some places have like a chief technology officer or chief innovation officer, or creative strategist. But usually that creative strategist is looking at strategy for like marketing and, and mm-hmm. those kinds of things, but not really looking at, you know like a government committee or like a city planning and then and those types of things so it's like maybe maybe we can
0: get there i don't know maybe you guys can start you know we're gonna get there with we you because you're leading us there <laughs> you're doing amazing work so thank you the local community is so lucky to have you there and we're lucky to have you here oh thank you guys so much yeah. would love to have you back we're yeah. like getting you on the record saying that you would love to be back. <laughs> I <laughs> would love to be back because, like, I,
2: we could talk forever about healthcare and how to change healthcare and what's good about it, and what's bad about it. And it's just, it's really hard to do in a short amount of time because healthcare is so complicated. But I do think that if we just take, you know, one or two little steps, as in, like, what makes you as an individual happy? and whole and healthy and then it's like then if you work in the healthcare industry why are you not practicing those things in your delivery model of healthcare so it's like if you look at the individual then you can extrapolate that to the masses and i think that's what we just need to focus on more and more
0: well thank you so much you you. are so awesome and oh my goodness
1: Studio audience, thanks you too. It's
0: going wild. I
2: love
0: it. (laughs) Wild for Asha. (laughs) So thank you so much for being with us today. And I know, again, you're such a pro at this. Um, Would love to spend more time with you again in the future to dive in. Um, There's so many things. I was taking notes feverishly um, (laughs) on things really to start thinking about my own practice and, you know, how to start showing up as a leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that our audience paid very close attention. There's a lot here yeah. to take away today. Yeah. Thank you, Jake. Thank you for leaving.
2: Yeah.
1: And if nothing else, we want everybody to subscribe to the Beaumont House Call in addition to subscribing yes. to our podcast. And then we've got a reading recommendation. So Blue Zones, yeah. I wrote it down. So that's going to be on my, uh, I got to add that to my list of uh, books to check out here and, and read up on, because I think this is so important.
2: I actually have another book that I want to recommend to All right. uh, for- healthcare leaders. It's called Dying and Living in the Neighborhood. Um, It's by Prajat Singh. It's a great book that talks really about neighborhoods and um, how to invest in neighborhoods for healthcare. Uh, He's an MD, PhD, and it's an amazing book. So Blue Zones um, and then Dying and Living in the Neighborhood. And then of course, subscribe to Beaumont House Call to learn how to live happy (laughs) and healthier lives. So thank you guys.
0: Okay. Bye-bye.
2: Don't forget to subscribe.